all, they had roads that led everywhere, and all the roads led to Rome. However, spiritually and morally, it was a bankrupt society. Morality basically was non-existent, and religious hedonism ruled. Everybody just did what they wanted to do, whatever they wanted their religion to be. You could do anything you wanted to do. It's a whole lot like a nation I know. And I live in it. Like All roads led to Rome. And every individual could just do whatever they wanted to do. Pick and choose their own morality. And Warren Wiersbe, we're talking about the culture of the day, put it this way. The stories tell us that the Roman world was in great expectation, waiting for a deliverer at the time Jesus was born. The old religions were dying, the old philosophies were empty and powerless to change men's lives. Strange new mystery religions were invading the empire. Religious bankruptcy and spiritual hunger were everywhere. God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son. One of the things, in quote, one of the things you will hear throughout the holidays as you listen to music and people talk is peace on earth. Peace on earth. And literally that's what God said. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he came to earth to bring peace to individual hearts. That's what we celebrate. So let's think for a moment about the culture of the Jews when Jesus entered the planet. In the Holy Land, Palestine, in that area, they were under Roman rule. But they were allowed to have their own king. His name was Herod. He called himself the King of the Jews. And he was an absolute despot. He was cruel. He was vicious. He was really only half Jewish at that. And he was a murdering king. He was thief. He was a thief. He was cruel to the extent he murdered four or five enemies at least to get the throne. He murdered his brother in law. He murdered his wife. And he murdered his two sons when he was afraid they were out to get his throne. He was a cruel, vicious man. Only interested in Herod. He did not propagate, remember, he's the king of the Jews. He did not propagate, propagate or teach that Jehovah was the sole God. He allowed the Romans to have their, quote, gods everywhere, whatever it was. Uh, he killed all the great rabbis, the teachers of the Jews. He had all of them executed. He worshipped Caesar Augustus himself, and he took the temple. Remember, he had the original temple of Solomon that was destroyed in Babylonian uh, under, under Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC. 586 BC under the sieges, and the temple was destroyed, and Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was originally uh, uh, 70 years later, they come back, and they would rebuild it called the Rubbles Temple. And then Herod had it redone again, the temple at Jerusalem, the temple of the Jews. And in that temple, he had put the emblem, the great golden eagle of Rome over that temple saying what? You want to worship Jehovah God fine, but Rome was God under Herod's it was called Herod's temple. So he burned Herod again, cruel as he was. He burned all the pedigrees of the Jewish people. This was incredibly important if you were a Jew. These were kept in the temple. In other words, I would be able, as a Jew, to go to the temple and get my pedigree, my ancestry, and they didn't have ancestry.com, and trace everything back to the patriarchs so that I could say, as, as Paul would write later about himself when he was listening to his resume, talking about, this is what I, as a Pharisee, this is what I believed in. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I could trace it all the way back to the patriarchs. That was incredibly important for Jew to be able to do that. For example, when you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, how does it begin? How does the New Testament begin? You know, because you know, you've read it for about 30 seconds and you said, This is boring, I'm not reading this anymore. So and so begat, you got King James, so and so begat, so and so begat, so and so begat, so and so begat. And by the time you're 10, you're like, What the heck is a begat? I ain't reading this anymore. But what it was, was Matthew was writing to Jews. He was saying, we can trace the lineage of Mary and in Luke, you've got you know, one Mary, one Joseph, all the way back. Nevertheless, what did you do? Why? Because Harry was the historian of Jesus. So the last, really, the that of the Messiah was the only one that was left. And that's 
the message there. What's the only one that matters? That of the disciples. That Jesus was God. That his mother Mary, his earthly father Joseph, that those lines had been seen and fulfilled, that he was God in the flesh. Well, Herod's cruel as he went, he went in, he destroyed all those pedigrees. And then in AD 70, when under Titus, the Romans just came in and leveled everything, including the temple, there was nothing left. Jesus Christ. Herod was cruel. So what happened was this national isolationism arose amongst the Jews to protect their culture. And two groups of people arose, and you see this throughout the gospel. You had the learned people, and you had everybody else. You had the Pharisees, and you had everybody else. This is where the Pharisaical system arose and the, and the synagogue system. All of that is beginning to flourish. So what they say, what the Pharisees would say to the Jews is, you need to listen to us. We're the ones that had it together. They were the elitists of the time. We know what's right, we know what's going on. You have to do it our way, or you cannot be, quote, right with God. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians. He said, when it came to the law, I was blameless as a Pharisee. I kept the law, so I was right with God. What did Jesus say? You have heard it said, you shall not do this, but if you even think about it, you've done it. So in other words, you're guilty even though you think you're not guilty. In other words, how many of you are guilty? All of you. But the Pharisees were self-righteous. So they developed this culture that we want nothing to do with Rome. We're Jews. We're the chosen ones. We're God's people. And we're going to be separate. And even to the point that it was a crime under the Jewish law to read a book written by a non-Jew. Anything cultural had to do with Rome was wrong. It was illegal in the eyes of the Pharisees. So they had the two classes. And about 6,000 Pharisees at one time, this is about 7 BC, about 6,000 Pharisees, and it was them versus all the other Jews. So everything came down to obeying their rules and their laws, and they had like ten massive volumes that they had added to the law of Moses and said, This is now the law. Things like you can't walk over 18 pieces from your house on the Sabbath, or you can't do this, you can't do that. It's crazy stuff, you can't pick up the stick, you can't do this. That's why Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Lord upon the Sabbath of I am. And this became their religion. Now, the other thing, historically, you have the Roman culture, you have the Jewish culture. The last voice that the Jewish people had had from God was a prophet named Malachi. In the year of the Bible, the Old Testament, the last word Malachi. It had been 400 years. Pause for a moment.
Then the Gentile domination leading up to now being dominated by Rome. Always in the mind of the Jews, they had one hope that they clung to. What was the hope? Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. To this day, at Passover, if you go into the home, you go to a Seder meal, you go to the home of, of Orthodox Jews, they still send a child out of the street to see what? Is Messiah coming? Is Messiah coming? We know that he has come. That his name was Jesus. He was from Nazareth. And he was the God man. Look at verse 78 of Luke chapter 1. Verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, Luke 178. Through the tender mercy of our God, who puts the day spring from on high, has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. They had the hope that day spring, that means Messiah, will come and deliver them from darkness. That he's coming. So now we get go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Context for a moment of where this is written. Luke 1 1. Luke is an interesting book. Luke is the intro. Luke writes his book, and Luke was a physician, a very learned man, and he writes his as an orderly account, as a historical account, not just he writes it in order. That's how you, where you can put the synoptic gospels together. John, for example, didn't write like that. John wrote like a crazy man. He just had an evangelical fervor and just wrote it based on miracles and signs of Jesus, what he did, his great I am statement. Luke said, I set out, I forgot in Theophilus, I set out to give you an orderly account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So his intro here, Luke 1, 1 through 4, is a connection and the transition from the Old Testament time of Malachi to this New Testament time under Rome. So look at Luke 1. Luke 1 1. Inasmuch then, inasmuch as many have taken in hand the sudden order and narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Lord delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. This is the time we're looking at now of Zacharias and Elizabeth. This intro. Zacharias and Elizabeth were John the Baptist's parents. It's his mom and dad. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of what we just read over in Malachi. He was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who's going to come on the scene and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the one who's going to prepare the nation of Israel and the world for the, come, the coming of the Messiah. That is here. So God sends Gabriel with a special message after 400 years of silence. He's sending a special message to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Just a little bit about John the Baptist, and then we'll get into that. John chapter 1. John's gospel, in his intro, his prologue, he says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And he said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, who sadly strapped, I am not worthy to loose. I'm here to tell you there's somebody coming after me who existed before me. That's possible that he would be Luke. No. 
I'm here to tell you God is here. That's my job. Isaiah said I was coming. I'm here to tell you that God is here. He preferred before me. I'm not worthy to undo his sandwich, but he's God in the flesh. The next day, John, the gospel says, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now look at John, excuse me, Luke 1, verse 5. Luke 1, 5. And here's the scene. Here, and that there was in the days of Herod, this is the king of the Jews, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. And by the way, the Bible might, might say Zechariah, Zacharias, obviously the same name. A certain priest named Zacharias in the division of Abijah, Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. All right. So, Zechariah, name, names are very important. Scripture are very important to Jews. His name was Yahweh has remembered. Zacharias means. Zacharias is simply one of thousands of priests that existed in Judea at the time. The synagogue had risen uh, to diminish the role of the priests. They had a lot of things that they did, but they weren't that important in the eyes of people. It was a heresy that ruled everything. The glory of the temple had diminished, but they didn't have the ark, or whatever they wanted to do. They didn't have this kind of glory like they had at one time. It all came down to daily ritual and doing what the Pharisees said. So, verse 5. Zacharias is simply a priest serving in an obscure village uh, somewhere in Judea. And that these priests were divided into divisions, 24 of the divisions at the time of David. It's been about a thousand years. 24 divisions of these priests. Verse 8, we'll drop down there for a moment. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, one of these 24 divisions, it comes in verse 8. Notice popping your hand out in the fullness of time, God does things. Verse 8, it was Zechariah, it found that this was the time that Zacharias served in the temple. Here's the way it worked. Every priest in Judea they had to go to the temple twice a year and work for a week. Like being sent out of town by your boss, you, you gotta go to Kaziesco in this city for a week. Gotta go where? I had to do that. Anyway. You gotta go to Jerusalem for a week, twice a year, to serve in the temple. It just fell that this was Zechariah's time. Why did it fall that this was Zechariah's time? Because God had planned it. God is sovereign. Now, how many years have it had taken place for the Messiah? Their whole lives. All of them had. They wanted the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom on earth. That's what they thought was gonna happen. The disciples thought that. Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was going to set up the kingdom. Is it now time, Lord? So Zacharias, like every righteous, he and his wife Elizabeth are righteous Jews. They're believers. And he's doing his job. And he, it's now his turn to go to Jerusalem and serve in the temple. That's what's going on. And Elizabeth, that name in Hebrew means, my God is an oath. My God is an oath. And Zacharias is God only has to remember. He only keeps they were personally righteous in the first six of them. They were both righteous before God. Righteous before God. And the idea here is they were blameless. They, they, when it says they were righteous before God, it doesn't mean that they did, they did not sin. It means the term we would use today is they were born again. It means they were justified. That they were right with God. And then it says that they walked blameless. We're also in the process of sanctification. They lived it. They didn't just give it lip service, they gave it life service. They were born again and they lived like it. They loved their God, they served their God, and they did what was right for God. But they had a burden. Burdens in verse 7. They had no child. Elizabeth was barren and they were old people. Now, the message of the culture to them if you were a Jew and you were old, you didn't have any children. If you were a barren woman, you know what the message was to you and your husband? We broke the mark. I know that wasn't the message. The message was 
who says to Zacharias, can you imagine what Owen's done with Elizabeth? Oh, hey, I got good news. And I got unbelievable news. Which are sad. You're going to have a baby. Angel has spoken. God's timing, God's will, God's plan. Look at verse 23. So it was as soon as the days of his service, the time his week is up, were completed, he departed with his own house and went back to their village. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days that he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. In other words, they're no longer looking at the mockery because I'm going to have a baby. They're also going to be saying, Oh, how did this happen? They just go home. was told that you're going to have a baby. He, work, he, he, he finishes his week's work at the temple and they go home. Sure enough, she gets pregnant. She conceived. God said, this is what's going to happen to you. Now notice the privilege that Zacharias and Elizabeth had. Verse 14. 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for your son's birth just. But he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's the privilege that they had. Verse 14 Many are going to rejoice at the birth of your son. They're going to rejoice themselves. Obviously, their family will rejoice. You and you, verse 14, you, Zechariah and Elizabeth, you're going to have joy and gladness when you meet parents. But beyond that, many are going to rejoice because your boy is going to be special in history. In fact, we're giving his name John the Baptist. Normally, that's not what would happen. In, this, in the Jewish culture, when Zacharias had a son, he would be named what? Something along the line of Zacharias. But none of his name was going to be John. It would be named Zacharias or some other male in the family. It's going to be John. Verse 15. See the little word for? The reason these people are going to rejoice. He's going to be great in the eyes of God. Again, they're a righteous couple. Aren't they thrilled that their son is going to be great in the eyes of God? That's all you can ask for as a Christian parent is that your child is great in the eyes of God. John the Baptist would be. He'll lead a life of self-denial and total devotion. The whole idea of strong drink and all that. that goes back to the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament that they're just it's like fasting. His whole life would be one set aside, totally committed to God and nothing for personal self. Be about John the Baptist, it would be about what is it that God called me to do. We already read it John, John the Baptist said, I'm simply here to tell you about the one who is to come, God in the flesh. That's who he's going to be. Total devotion, and that's the white hot lamp. That's who he's going to be. And in verse 16, your son, Zacharias and Elizabeth, that you've waited for for years, God finally says, This is the time. Your son is the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah talked about your son. If you're a Jew, you need to understand how significant that is. He said, when you read the book of Isaiah, when you read the book of Malachi, and it talks about the forerunner of the Messiah, that's your son to be. They're talking about him. A special privilege you have. He's the one. I praise. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, speaking of John the Baptist, said these words. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and will prepare your way before you. Jesus said, John the Baptist is this God, the prophecy. And then Jesus said, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, in other words, all human beings, 
There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Please see this picture. It's so special. Number one, Jesus said John the Baptist is the fulfillment of prophecy. Number two, there's never been another a man on planet Earth greater than John the Baptist. That's high praise from God himself. But notice the next thing Jesus said is just so important. He said, but he's not any greater than anybody else. If you follow me, if you choose to serve me like John the Baptist is doing, you're just as great in the eyes of God. So important. Remember when Jesus was getting prepared for the 11 guys, they were going to go to the cross and they were going to take over. I love the Bible because it's so real. But just like we, you know, they're sitting around with Jesus, the Son of God, they think he's the Messiah. They're confused. Jesus is saying, in the kingdom, this is going to take place, this is going to take place. And then they start they start arguing with Jesus about what? You don't want to be in the kingdom, but am I going to sit right beside you? Or am I going to be over here? And, and, and Lord, you remember how much you like my mom? Do I need to come in here and talk to you? They were thinking about who? Themselves. And Jesus wanted them to think about. They just had to wash their feet. Remind them what? I'm God. I'm your Lord and Master. And I'm going to wash your feet. And you go do likewise. What he's saying about John the Baptist is willing to be a servant. Makes him the greatest man that ever walked the planet. And by the way, any of us are just as great. We're willing to be that servant. That's what Jesus is saying. High praise. And now drop down to verse 39. You see this prophecy fulfilled. Verse 39. Mary rose in those days, and she went to the hill country with haste to the city of Judah, near the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened while Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. Who knew that babe was his name to be? John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed the fruit of your womb. We're going to talk about Mary next week. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Verse 25, blessed she believed, and there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Thing to notice in this passage, this particular part of the chapter, is the word blessed, blessed, over and over and over again. How blessed Mary is, how blessed Elizabeth is. Mary's faith leads to her blessing. We'll talk about this next week. Not her personal healing. Mary was a sinner who needed a savior. She was happy carrying her wound. Blessed among women, absolutely. Any Jewish mom can have would be to be the mom of the Messiah. Not God. We'll talk about that next week. Prophecies fulfilled. I love the picture here. Mary comes in and greets Elizabeth, says, How are you? And what does John the Baptist do? Somersaults in her womb. He's already witnessing about Jesus, and he ain't even here yet. Somersaults in her stomach every morning throughout the day for a while. But John the Baptist is excited. It's an opportunity. Now, verse 55. 58, excuse me, verse 58. And her neighbors and her relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and Elizabeth had rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, his name will be John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by this name, John. Why are you doing this? 
and make signs to his father. What would he have him called him? He asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, His name is John. Now marvelous. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loose and he spoke, praising God. Fear came on all who dwelt around him and all those things, discussed about all the hill country of Judea, and all those who heard them kept him in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people. Here's what you see. It's point three on your handout in your notes. We've seen the time, the culture from Rome and the Jews, Zacharias and Elizabeth. What about for us? For the entire world. The first thing you see is that this is the advent of redemption, verse 68, that we just read. He's visited and redeemed. Not just the Jews, but see, everybody. Redemption has come. The second thing is bringing righteousness. You can be right with God. Verse 69. He's messed up, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David, and spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. And we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Perform the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant. Oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm sending a seed. There he is. Jesus is coming. God is coming. The bread us being delivered in the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The advent of righteousness. Verse 69 is cool, that little phrase. Horn of salvation. It's a Jewish expression from the Old Testament of power to conquer and destroy. Messiah came to conquer and destroy, not Rome. Paul talks about it and writes about it. He came to conquer sin and death. That's exactly what he did when he rose from the city and finished. When he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. That's what the Messiah was to come do. In the house of God's servant, David, Days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up David, a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. There are 40 passages in the Old Testament that refer strictly, specifically to the Davidic covenant. The idea that through David, Messiah, is going to come. Down here. And it's 72 through 75, it's referencing the Abrahamic covenant. Foundation of the entire Bible, foundation of all history. We reiterated in Genesis alone nine times God says it again. I will, I will, I will. An unconditional covenant. This is what I, God, am going to do. I'm going to bring mercy and grace to the entire human race. And then finally, verse 76, we see the advent of the forgiveness of the remission of sins. This is the new covenant. We celebrate. You child will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from high has visited us. This is a new covenant. We just talked about it earlier. Under the Pharisees, how did you get right with God? You kept their rules and regulations. Under the new covenant, under God's covenant, how did you get right with him? Because he's a God of mercy and grace. You trust his work that Jesus did on the cross would do in this case. Mercy and grace, the new covenant. John the Baptist is going to be the prophet of this. After 400 years of silence, he's the one God is raising up to announce to the world the Messiah that's here. Behold the Lamb of God, Passover, Exodus. Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. You get to go before him. You get to announce it to everyone that he's here. That's how special you are. Let's end with thinking about Zacharias and Elizabeth. All those years serving God, 
loving God, righteous before God, but looked on by their own people as a reproach because they didn't have a child. But God said, it's time now to give you that child. Not just any child. Poor letter of the Messiah. Gabriel's message to Israel. Not always, in many cases, it's not when we want it to be. But it's always perfect. Father, as we close out our time together today, we, we just thank you for your sovereign hand in history. Not just bringing Jesus as we celebrate his first advent, we call it Christmas. Not just because that occurred, but because you had an eternal plan. And that's what it worked out in history in the fullness of time. We thank you that even today we sit here and worship as believers in Jesus Christ. We look back and we marvel that after 400 years, you said, okay, now it's time. And it's Zacharias and Elizabeth, just daily servants of yours. Common. Everyday servants chose them to be the parents of the poor one on the side. Thank you for that message. That we're special. We just need to serve you. Pray in Jesus' name. You're here in the building. Please stand as we close out our time together.